I'm very excited uh, to introduce a friend of mine and a friend of Southland City Church to you. Uh, he's been here before. It's not his first time on this stage. Back in October, we held a, leading, uh, a gathering of church leaders from across the country, and Sean was one of the people up here facilitating that gathering. Uh, he's a teaching pastor at Ecclesia Church in Houston. Uh, he's, an author of, he's the author of one of my favorite books on church. It's called Unarmed Empire in Search of Beloved Community. And before I was a friend of Sean's, I was a fan of Sean's. But it's really fun to have him as a friend as well. Uh, he came all the way here from Houston, Texas, uh, which means he's dealing with both a time zone change and daylight saving time, which means I'm the smartest pastor in the world to book a guest on this Sunday. Uh, but you should give him lots of extra love as he comes up to teach us. Please welcome Sean Palmer. I have uh, arranged my life in such a way that things that I don't want to take care of, I don't have to. And so uh, I travel a lot. So there's some people who work for me. That, that do that, like several years ago, I was uh, talking to my mother because I was traveling some and I'm the one of those kind of people that gets online and I can, ne- like it'll take me forever to lock down a, a airline ticket, like to buy it and I'll look at every possible one. And I told her, I was like, I think I'm gonna hire me a, a virtual assistant. And she said, for what? I said, for all this, I just get lost. I'm looking at hotel rooms, and it just takes so long, and I don't want it to be too expensive. And she goes, well, I'll do that. She had just retired, and she was looking for stuff to do. She says, well, I'll come work for you. And I was thinking, great, because I'm not going to pay you. Um, (laughs) So she did. And also, like, if someone's going to have your credit card number, right, like, if you can't trust your mother with your credit card number, then you can't trust anybody. And I know this because... Like, my dad stole my brother's identity. So you can trust. I don't know about dads, but moms you can actually trust. So I'm in the air yesterday flying uh, to Chicago when I realized it's daylight savings time. Because I wasn't paying attention. And my flight out of Houston was two hours late. And then we drove over from Chicago. And uh, Jason's such a great conversationalist, and we love talking about books. Um, He's not read all those books at his house, if you've ever been over there. Um, (laughs) Because I asked him about, I, every time I've been here, I've asked him about books, right? That, and he goes, oh, I haven't read that one yet. And so I've come to the conclusion, he has not read any of them yet. Uh, but I'm, I'm glad to be here on, you know, a few hours of sleep because I do um, so much appreciate Jay and what this community means for so many of you that I got to meet in October and what I think God's going to do here going in the future. So as we open the scriptures together, let me... Let me ask God's blessing on our time. Just creator God, we're so grateful that um, you have allowed us to be your daughters and your sons. That you have adopted us as your children, just as we are. God, in all of our frailty and all of our beauty, that you have received us. And Lord, we want to live into the story that you have started, that you have shaped for us to be the women and men who you have created us to be. That we would be, Lord, not bigger than we should, but not smaller than we are. And toward that end, God, I pray that you pour through me the gift of preaching. That everything said here be from you and because of you and guiding us toward you as we partner with you to bring about your preferred future for all of creation. And we ask it in your name, in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. 
So from very early on, um, I realized that I am just a fabulous pastor. (laughs) And I realized this as a student in college, um, I, had an, I have an undergraduate degree in youth and family ministry, and as part of that, I had to spend a summer between my junior year and senior year of college interning for a church. And so I chose this church in San Antonio, Texas, and I was basically their youth ministry intern. They didn't have a youth pastor there at the ch- church at the time, and I was just let loose on the whole church, and I thought, this is going to be fabulous. And the reason I know that I was great is the first Sunday that I was there, one of the kids in the youth group, after me teaching Bible class just one time for 45 minutes, one of the kids got baptized that Sunday. It's like, I am God's gift to ministry. <laughs> like, what will I do with all of this power? And so he got baptized, but it wasn't Sunday morning. It was Sunday night. Um, and that's not very odd in the tradition that I grew up in. Baptism is a very big deal. We practice what's called believer's baptism. And we don't plan for baptisms. We don't have baptism Sunday. Like we're trying to, I think, recreate some sort of Philippian jailer kind of moment with people where if you decide like right then that you want to be baptized, like we will baptize you. And so that Sunday night, he got baptized. And I really did think, no one in the world has this figured out like I do. But the rest of that summer, like, I never saw that kid again. Like, he was gone at camps, and his dad had some weird job where he was in foreign countries all the time, like, in and out. I think he actually worked for the CIA and just didn't want to tell anybody. And mom had three other kids, and they were running around doing stuff all the time. So he spent most of his summer at camp. And it wasn't until the end of the summer that I found out what happened. Because for this class that I had to do in college and during this internship, like we had to write a reflection paper about everything that happened and our theological reflection on what had happened in our time that summer. So I started putting together all of elements of this story. I'm trying to figure out actually what did happen. And that's when I discovered why he got baptized my first Sunday there. Because not only did the church where I was raised consider baptism really important, they considered communion, the Lord's Supper, the Eucharist, really important. And those two things in the church of my youth were intrinsically connected. So you couldn't take communion if you weren't baptized. And so we saw baptism, believer's baptism, as the point of contact. So when someone comes into contact with the blood of Jesus. And so what happened was Sunday morning, after I taught this really spectacular Bible class, and after church was over, this kid snuck into the kitchen of the church and ate the leftover bread and grape juice from communion. And his parents freaked out. They did not know what to do. You can't take communion if you're not baptized in that system. They didn't, they, well, surely our son is, he's bound for Hades at this point. So they didn't know what to do. So they called, they called our 
preacher, the pastor of that church. And that night, that Sunday night, where I'm patting myself on the back for being God's gift to youth ministry, he was baptized because he had taken communion. And then we never saw him again, ever. And that's so much of the world that I lived in when it came to the Eucharist. It it was all about certain sets of ideas and some practices that went along with those ideas. And I love this because our downtown campus at Ecclesia is right by the train tracks too. We've legitimately had to start church like 15 minutes late because people are stuck behind a train that's not moving. And so communion just became about holding a set of ideas in a very legalistic way. And when you had it, when we shared it, the men of the congregation would just pass the bread and the cup down an aisle, and you would take it and ponder whatever you would ponder. And I honestly think that communion is just hard for Americans. I don't know if it's uniquely hard for Americans, but it's distinctly hard because we are a people whose fundamental formation is about independence and not about communion. That this simple idea that we do something, that we're called into something together is really an affront for how we do most everything. Think about your experiences just in the last few years when the American public has been asked to do something for the common good. Like, think about how we react, even when it's like a minor inconvenience. Did you see how some people responded to masks? Do you see how people responded every time someone says that we need to increase taxes or school safety, school shootings, policing? Many of you remember after 9-11? Do you know that in the history of our country, my dad was an American history teacher and I learned more American history around the dinner table than I ever did at school. Do you know that in American history, America has never gone to war without increasing taxes, except after 9-11. And you remember what they told us to do? Go shopping. Last year, where I live in Houston, Texas, we had a freeze. Now, it is currently like 27 degrees here. It does not get to 27 degrees in Houston, Texas, ever, except last year. We had a storm come through, and it was 17 degrees. Like, I did not grow up in cold climates. I don't ski. We don't have clothes for this sort of thing. My children, I have two daughters. One is 18, one is 15. Last year, they were 17 and 14. 
The neighborhood's blanketed with snow. They wanted to go out. It looked beautiful. They wanted to be in the snow. I was out there for about five minutes, and I was like, it's just, it's too cold. Like, I'm just not doing that. But if you watch the news, if you follow the news, um, the Texas power grid failed. They weren't winterized, and it wasn't legal. They didn't have to be winterized. So the whole power grid failed, and if you were paying attention also, you might remember that the Texas power grid is completely independent. So other states, like when they have a power surge or need more power, they can draw down power from neighboring states. But Texas power grid is independent. And you know what happened as Texans were freezing to death in their homes? Like our elected officials said things like, well, Texans would rather go through this than have laws passed down from Washington. No, we would not. Like, we're freezing. Like, I had a friend, one of my former youth ministry kids, who had to take down his fence to burn firewood to keep his family from freezing. People died. In our house, we just happened to live at this little place where we hardly ever lose power, and we lost power for about four hours, and that was it, and we slept through most of it. And so, like, I was scrolling through Facebook a couple of days after, the power grid failed, and there someone was talking about how they had lost power, and it was really bad, but really, it was his own fault, and if you lost power in your house, like, that was your own fault, too. You should have been prepared with a generator and firewood and all of these other things, and the reason we're like that is not because we're bad people. It's just our imaginations are just straight-jacketed with a particular view of independence. And that view of independence makes communion almost impossible. This simple idea that comes up in Scripture over and over again, that you and I would legitimately see other people and other people's welfare as more important than our own is nearly completely divorced from the Western Christian experience. And some of you feel it right now. You don't like that idea. And I wouldn't like it either. And I wouldn't believe in it either if it weren't in the Bible. It's something that someone told me that I should do and if it weren't in the scriptures, I wouldn't believe it either. And that struggle, the struggle to see past the self to the group, has been a struggle for the church, for Christians, since the earliest days. It's not new for us, even though we have some distinct expressions of it. And so, like, when the Apostle Paul sits down to write to the churches— particularly this church in Corinth that he knew really well, to explain to them what life together looks like. These are the kinds of things that he talks about. Now, we've had the Bible around for so long that we have forgotten that when you open the New Testament and you read the Gospels, when you read epistles, when you read the history, like, no one had ever done this before. Like, this was all new. Like, there, there wasn't something where we can just draw down from history And so all this is new to them. And so this is what Paul writes to churches 
in 1 Corinthians 11 about communion. He says, now in the following instructions, do we have it for the screen? Because you won't believe me if you don't see it. (laughs) Now in the following instructions, I do not condemn you because when you come together, it is not for the better or for the worse. For to begin with, when you come together as a church, I hear that there are divisions among you, and to some extent, I believe it. Indeed, there have, been, there have to be factions among you, for only so will it become clear who among you are genuine. So this is some of the factions. Like, that's an indication of who's genuine and who's not. There are some people who are coming together, and they are not genuine, and over time, they will expose themselves. Like a leopard always shows its spots. And then he says, when you come together, it is not really to eat the Lord's Supper. For when the time comes to eat, each of you goes ahead with your own supper. And one goes hungry and another becomes drunk. What? Do you not have homes to eat and drink in? Or do you show contempt for the church of God and humiliate those who have nothing? What should I say to you? Should I condemn you in this? In this matter, I do not commend you. Now, this is what's happening in Corinth. They're sharing a meal together. And in the context of that meal, they're sharing the Lord's Supper, the Eucharist together. And what's happening is they're getting together and some people at the end of the meal are hungry and some people are drunk. So this is how this happens. Some people are getting less than what they need and other people are taking more than what they need. You've got some who are living from a state of deprivation and others who are living in a state of excess. And what's literally happening is that in their world, much like our world, there are two kinds of people. There are people who shower before work and there are people who shower after work. And the people who shower after work are going home and cleaning up. And by the time they come together with the church, the shower before work people have eaten and drank everything. And Paul's word for this is contempt. Do you know what ruins most relationships, most romantic relationships, business relationships? It's not affairs and adultery. It's not financial mismanagement. It's when people start to treat one another with contempt. Because all of those other things that we do, all the things that spring out, like they find their root in contempt. And Paul is saying, when you share the Lord's Supper, 
the point of sharing the Lord's Supper is the other people. We, we have this little problem at the church where I serve, is we have communion every week. And just like here, we serve by, con- by intention. People come forward, they get a piece of bread, they dip it. But because we have a lot of kids, it creates a backlog in our family ministry section when people are trying to check their kids out. So people come up after the message, they take communion, and then they just kind of walk out and go get their kids from our kids' spaces. And I've said this to them, so I'm not talking out of school. You're not taking communion. And the first act that you do is a self-important, selfish, self-centered, self-centering act. That is not communion. Because the point of communion is the other people. You can't actually be a person that takes communion and think, I don't want to wait for these other people to get my kid. Like some of us can't get out of the church parking lot without doing something selfish. And Paul's not done. He goes, for I received from the Lord what I also handed on to you. That the Lord Jesus on the night when he was betrayed took a loaf of bread and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body that is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he took the cup also after supper saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this and as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Whoever, therefore, eats the bread and drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be answerable for the body and blood of the Lord. Examine yourselves, and only then eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For all who eat and drink without discerning the body eat and drink judgment on themselves. For this reason, many of you who are weak and ill, and some have died, but if we judged ourselves, we would not be judged. But when we are judged by the Lord, we are disciplined so that we may not be condemned along with the world. So when my girls were little, I knew they were going to get a lot of churchy stuff. And they were in a Christian school. And so we didn't want to make home like super overbearing with a lot more churchy stuff. So we read to them, and we did some, like, family Bible stuff. But there was only one thing that I wanted to make sure that they knew. And it were these words from 1 Corinthians 11, where I said, I won't ever ask you to memorize anything except for this. For on the night that he was betrayed, Jesus took bread and broke it. And the rest of the words of institution. And so every day, every Sunday, when we would come together and share the Lord's Supper, I would recite that to them when they were little until they were old enough to say it back to me. Because I grew up really worried about this passage. 
about receiving communion in an unworthy manner. And the problem was <laughs> that nobody actually told me what an unworthy manner was. Like, what should I be doing? Like, do I think about God and Jesus? Do I think about the cross? Like, how do I think about that? They just said, like, oh, yeah, you're, you're going you're gonna to go to hell if you don't receive this in a worthy manner, if you take it in an unworthy manner. And that kept me up at night. Like, as a little kid, it kept me up at night. And I wanted our girls to know this because in this passage, there's this simple word that until I was an adult, I skipped over. And starting like in verse 33, so then, Paul says, my brothers and sisters, when you come together to eat, wait for one another. If you're hungry, eat at home so that when you come together, it will not be for your condemnation. About the other things, I will give you instructions when I come. And right there was the word that I had been waiting for. What should I be doing as I share communion? Wait. Wait. And not just wait around. Like, wait for one another. Have you noticed how much waiting people in the scriptures do? After the flood, before the waters have rescinded, Noah sending out that dove day after day, they're waiting. After God promises to make Abraham a great nation and bless him with a son, what does he get to do? Wait. When the Israelites are enslaved in Egypt for hundreds and hundreds of years, they wait. When Moses goes up to the mountain to meet God, what do the Hebrews do at their camp? They wait. And throughout the Psalms, people are waiting on God. When Jonah preaches in Nineveh, he goes and sits under a tree and he waits. When Job loses his family and all of his possessions and feels he's been betrayed by God, his friends come and what do they do? They wait. While the Hebrews look for a savior, between the last words of the Old Testament and the first words of the New Testament, they wait. But they don't just wait. They wait with one another and for one another. There's this beautiful scene in Genesis when Jacob is reunited with his brother Esau. And Jacob's bringing back all of his wives and kids and possessions. They're going back to Canaan. And it's going to be a really tense reunion between him and his older brother. And they meet in the desert. And Esau comes out with all of these men. They think they might be going to war, but they reconcile. And Esau says, come on, come on, let's go back. And, you know, all of your slaves and property can come a little bit later. And then the scriptures say that Jacob declines his brother's offer to go ahead of the group 
And he says, we will wait and travel by the footsteps of the children. We're waiting, not just with other people, but for other people. And that's important, because when you come together, there are some of us who want to go fast, and our call is to wait. And what it means to be in community, the way we receive communion in an unworthy manner, is to think the whole world, the whole church, should move at our pace. This is about me, about what I want, what I'm doing. That's, that's not communion. To receive communion in an unworthy manner is to receive it without thought about the community. And the people in the community who shower after work and that you have to wait on. When I was writing the book that Mike mentioned, Unarmed Empire, I heard the story of a Catholic nun named Antonia Brenner, who was known as the prison nun. And Sister Antonia was a Southern California socialite who had an incredible great life in terms of finances and resources, but found herself with grown children and twice divorced, and she heard a call from God to become a nun. But because she was twice divorced, no order would accept her. So she decided to start her own. And she became a nun and went to work at La Mesa Prison in Tijuana, Mexico. And that's where she worked for 30 years. And she became beloved by the inmates there. Not only by the inmates, but by the warden and the guards. She lived as a go-between, between the two. When Sister Antonia would walk through the prison, prisoners would reach out their arms to her, calling to her and asking if she would come and sit with them and visit with them that day. Well, one year, she decided to take a trip back home to Southern California, and while she was away, a riot broke out at the prison. And prisoners took over, they killed a couple of guards, and when Sister Antonia heard about it, she immediately returned to Tijuana, and she begged the warden to let her go in the prison. The place was on fire. The warden had given up, called all the guards out, and told her she can't go in there. It's just too dangerous. But she insisted and insisted and insisted, and he finally relented and allowed her to go in. And she walked through the prison, and she started calling out the prisoners by name. And immediately, 
they laid down their weapons. One of the prisoners said, Sister Antonia, as soon as we heard your voice, we laid down our guns. And the reason they did that was for 30 years, at the end of her workday of doing spiritual direction and counseling and visiting with inmates, at the end of the day, she did not go home to her house in Tijuana. She walked down to the end of the cell block to her own 8 by 10 cell where she lived. And this is communion. That God has come to be with us. And that we are called, we are invited to be with us one another. For on the night he was betrayed, Jesus took bread and broke it, saying, this is my body given for you. And in the same way, after the meal, he poured the cup, saying, this is my blood of the new covenant shed for you. Whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. And Paul says he received this from the Lord. All these words, received, handed, betrayed, right there in the same scripture, all have the same meaning of something being given over, handed over. And this is what God has done for us what God has done to be with us. I want to invite you to the table. And around the room, there are stations where you can partake. There's no rush to do this. You don't need to feel hurried. But as you go, we are reminded that we are people who live deeply from the well of witness and waiting. And that God is with us. And God has waited on us. And it is what we extend to one another. So God, thank you for the bread and the cup that gives us new life every day. That broken and poured out you can, be shed, you can be shared and only broken and only poured out can you be shared. And may we join you in it with our partners, with our children, in our workplaces, in our schools. Because your promise to us was that for all of our days, you would be with us. And we ask it in your name, in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. I just want to leave you with my favorite benediction from the book of Jude. Now to him who is able to keep you from falling and to make you stand without blemish in the presence of his glory with rejoicing, to the only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ, our Lord, 
be glory, majesty, power, and authority before all time, now and forever. Amen. Peace be with you.